You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Modern Myth with me, Tristan, the Anarchaeologist. Today I have the wonderful, wonderful privilege of talking to William Carraher, Bill Carraher. Oh my word, I cannot say your surname. Thank you for coming on and apologies for butchering your surname. Uh, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. I don't get to do many podcasts. This will be fun. Good, good. I I definitely, this is, I know this is going to be a fun one because uh, I actually, I've read a lot of uh, the work you've done and we'll be definitely bringing up some of that stuff because I am really, really interested to pick your brain uh, about a couple of things. So I hope you're ready. All right. That's a little intimidating. I hope I remember <laughs> what I wrote. <laughs> Don't worry about it. So as I understand it, you are the publisher of the digital press at the University of North Dakota. You're also a professor there. I, I sometimes mess up titles, so I'll let you introduce yourself properly. Uh, I'm an associate professor in the Department of History uh, here at, at, at UND, as we call it. And uh, I'm also editor of the literary journal North Dakota Quarterly. So I, I, I'm not to be too suspicious of you being in the history department, am I? A little bit, yeah. I was thinking uh, just earlier this week that I've never actually had an archaeology class. Um, I'm completely field trained. Right. Is that is that kind of where you saw yourself from a very young age? Did you look at Indiana Jones and think, hey, I'm going to be an archaeologist? Or what happened there? No, I didn't think about that at all. In fact, I, uh, I my, my training, I went to Catholic schools. Uh, I grew up on the East Coast in Wilmington, Delaware, big Catholic community, went to a big urban all boys Catholic school um, and uh, started taking Latin. Uh, in fact, I started taking Latin in uh, elementary school because uh, my language skills weren't good. So they threw me in a Latin class and I took a bunch of Latin. And uh, when I got to, to college, after I, mean, I entered college, something you know, almost sounds sounds 18, 19th century uh, to say things like this, but I had uh, you know six years of Latin. So I naturally uh, decided to take Latin in college because I thought oh, this was an easy way to get good grades, you know, out, out, yeah. out of the gate. Um, and uh, I found a, a very, I went to a, a small liberal arts college in the South called the University of Richmond, and I found a very welcoming department uh, with very charismatic faculty. Uh, and they kind of sucked me into the entire world of classics. And uh, I took Greek, I took Latin, I took biblical Hebrew. Um, and when I was uh, a junior or senior, it seemed like a natural course to go to grad school in, in I, I knew I didn't want to do classics, but uh, it seemed like a natural course to go to grad school in history. Um, and I assumed that I would just be a textual historian, right? That I would just be the kind of garden variety, you know, in fact, when I first got to grad school, my, my first effort at a dissertation topic was something dreadful, like, you know, the Roman Navy in the second century BC. Um, and, uh, yeah, my master's thesis was very textual. It was looking at Arian and Curtius Rufus, uh, you know, Alexander historians, uh, very much kind of, um, you know, conventional ancient history. And it wasn't until really after my comprehensive exams, which is not the ideal time to decide that really what you want to be is an archaeologist. Uh, but that's kind of what happened. So after my comps, I started to uh, 
take archaeology or not take classes even uh hang around uh archaeologists mm-hmm. and um yeah so what was yeah. the first uh what was the first dig you went on then uh i i started uh i started um my advisor is a guy called tim gregory and he uh, is the director of the ohio state excavations at ismia in greece which is uh primarily a roman bath but it also has a, a big fort called the hexameleon uh and it has a fort associated with that which is just in uh fifth fifth sixth century and i went there uh during a study season and just sort of hung around and then a year later when they started a survey uh of the eastern corinthia so isthmus is in the uh, in the corinthia um i went and then worked for uh five years on on that uh and then continue to play around in the Corinthia. And it's kind of funny. The first time I was actually on an excavation uh, was an excavation I directed, which is exactly what you want to hear from your excavation director. Wow. Um, I, but I surrounded myself uh, before, you know, the, the flags go up on, on my, my ethical, uh, uh, whatever, you know, ethical flags go up. I surrounded myself with extraordinary excavators. And so and it was in Cyprus and it was in 2003 or four or five or so. Ah, no, it must be later than that. 2008, something like that. Anyway, whenever it was, uh, it wasn't actually that long ago. And so I'm not really much of a, um, an excavator. Uh, I don't, I find it really boring, uh, but I'm a, I'm a survey archeologist type person. Uh, I like to be out in the countryside and working at scale. Um, and most of my archeological ex- experience has been um, surveys on Cyprus and in Greece. Right, right. I mean, that's probably, I mean, was there a bit of a kind of, there must have been some sort of cultural or geographical difference, you know, going from, um, you know, America over to Greece. I mean, did you ever notice anything when you're out there that uh, kind of sticks in your memory as the experience? Uh, Yeah, I mean, Greece is a very different place from, from the US. I've had the good fortune of uh, of living there, both when I wrote my dissertation, which was uh, more architectural history, and uh, uh, and I've been doing field work. In fact, this year is the first year in um, over twenty years that I, I I'm not in Greece in the summer, and so it's a little hard for me to uh, kind of venture back to that point in my life where Greece was unfamiliar. I still feel like when we're landing in the Athens airport, uh, a, ver- a sense of of almost like I'm. I'm I mean, without sounding too, too melodramatic or whatever, but like a sense of going home, right? Like this is a place I know, like I don't get nervous in the Athens airport. Like I don't get nervous in Athens because I know the routines and I'm not like by, by nature, uh, like an intrepid traveler. I'm not someone who wants, like I went to EIAs a couple of years ago in Barcelona and I spent the entire time being very aware that I didn't speak Spanish well. Um, and that was very stressful for me. But Greece, ah, it's like a comfortable place. Cyprus is a comfortable place now. And so it's hard for me to to think back sometimes to those, those days where it was very unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that, uh, one of the reasons that I know of your work is through the book Punk Archaeology. I just want to bring you back to, that was released back in, was it 2014, 2013? Yeah, 2014, I think, yeah. So this book is a collection of various pieces by like archaeologists and actually the kind of like, it's kind of a, it is a mix of lots of different people. And I kind of want to get a good understanding of how this book came together and what was your role in kind of like in it as well. So let's start at the start. How did the book Punk Archaeology appear? 
So, yeah. Okay. So this, this has, again, takes us back to Greece. Um, it happened that, that, uh, when, I, so I, I do, uh, my, 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 I do a lot of different things, probably most of them not very well, but, uh, my, my actual area of background is, uh, like fifth to 10th century Eastern Mediterranean Greece stuff. Right. Primarily. And so when I was, uh, but, but what you do when you study ancient Greece, archeology span of ancient Greece, particularly as a historian or classes, you go spend time, um, at the American school of classical studies in Athens. And, uh, during my time there, uh, you, you know, there, there was a sense, uh, there's a sense of, of being, of being a little bit marginal, right? Because cl- it's classical studies, right? This is, this is, you know, the, the study of, of, you know, at, at its most narrow, you know, whatever you'd say it is, you know, fifth, fifth to fourth century, um, Greece, you know, maybe just Athens actually, um. And, and in its broadest, you know, the classical period maybe goes through the Roman period. So third century AD on the one hand, and maybe starts in sixth century BC or seventh century BC or whatever. And so I was always on the kind of chronological margins. Uh, also, the, the methods I, I use, uh, you know, I was a survey guy. So I was an archaeologist, but I was also in a history program and I wasn't a digger. Um, I didn't dig at any of the kind of classic American sites where, you know, you, you cut your teeth, the Athenian Agora or whatever. I was like wandering around in the countryside with my advisor, this guy, Tim Gregory, who was also doing late stuff, who for various reasons had been sort of on and off persona non grata at the American school. Uh, and, and so I was a, a kind of a, 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 a I mean, I don't, I don't want to paint myself out to be some sort of you know, Vox Clamantis or something, you know, wild haired, you know, speaking truth to power. But I certainly wasn't like part of the kind of traditional practice of, of archaeology at, at that time. So that's kind of part of the story. So me, me and this other guy uh, called Kostis Karelis, uh, he's uh, at the time was a grad student at Penn. Uh, and he was very similar to me in some sense. He was an architectural historian, but he was really doing field work. And he and I got to know each other and, and talked primarily online, actually. We organized a, we organized a conference a panel, I think, at, at maybe an Archaeological Institute of America on um, abandonment in classical period. And we edited uh, a, a, an issue of the International or whatever it is, the International Journal of Historical Archaeology dedicated to uh, abandonment in, in the Mediterranean. And, and, and in fact, we hadn't even met, but we we'd talked a lot on, on, online about kind of our experiences of being kind of marginal figures in our fields and um, particularly in the, the, the study of Greece. And part of that naturally turned to, to you know, talking about talking about music and things like that. Uh, and talking about well, what are the institutional history that that made us kind of these these somewhat more marginal figures uh, in, in mm-hmm. our discipline. This is going somewhere, I, I promise. Um, don't oh, ever yeah, ask no, me. no, keep going. Origin stories are always a little bit weird. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. So in any event, uh, part of this came into talking about various archaeologists who had had, uh, you know, pretty uh, figures who had had some experience in, in, in the music scene, right? And uh, then as we started trading notes, it, it occurred to us that we probably had been on similar shows in Philadelphia. We, we uh, my buddy Costis was a, a Philly kid. Uh, I, I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware. Like we, we probably had been at similar shows. We had similar tastes in music. And we started talking about what a punk archaeology would look like, which was very comfortable for us because we were speaking from, you know, we felt like we were speaking from the margins of discipline in some way. And, you know, this was a, a it's a, okay. All of this is happening. At some point we said, you know, we should do a concert. We should do a conference. And as we started to talk about this more, a couple of my North Dakota friends uh, became interested. And this guy, Andrew Reinhardt, um, 
who recently finished his PhD at York, but has been a longtime publisher uh, for, for archaeological stuff. He was publisher at the American School of Classical Studies Press, which is a very good American kind of traditional press. And now I think he's, I can't remember what his title is, but he's the publisher of the American Numismatic Society Press. Um, any of it, he became in the, somehow became involved in the conversation. Andrew finds his way to, to, to become involved in lots of interesting conversations. And uh, yeah, long story short is we decided to do a conference in Fargo. Um, and we got some money from, from various people to put on this conference. And we decided we'd have musicians there too. So we got a bunch of bands together. And, the, and, we were, it, and it was at a bar, uh, a hotel bar at a Howard Johnson's that was about at the very end of its use life. I mean, this thing, this is, this is the end. This is like, I think the place gets torn down like two years later and we just decide to like occupy the bar. I mean, we, we organized it with the owners of the bar. Like it wasn't so mm-hmm. weird, like, yeah. you know, but, but we, we, we basically took over the bar for a night, um, but not really other patrons were coming in and mm-hmm. playing pool Then we had a megaphone and then there were bands and there were um, these talks and a bunch of my buddies came in. It was the middle of winter too. And man, it must've been like, we left there, uh, you know, late at night, one or two a.m., and it was probably I don't know minus minus twenty degrees. It was uh, Fahrenheit. It was brutally, brutally cold. So everyone, you know, gathers in Fargo for this event. Um, at the end of it, uh, um, we said, "Well, we should we should do a book," but none of us really knew how he knew how to do a book, uh, except Andrew, because Andrew's a publisher, and. Uh, this other guy who's kind of instrumental in this moment was this guy called Joel Jonitz, uh, and he's a graphic designer here at the University of North Dakota. And he said, hey, I'll um, I'll help you guys with graphic design. I'll do some poster design because he was just the type of guy who'd show up for anything that was kind of a good time. Yeah. And so he kind of showed up, showed up and gave the book its kind of graphic identity. And Andrew showed up to help us with the kind of production workflow. And then everything was sort of coming together. And uh, this guy, Joel, uh, tragically and suddenly died. And then we're like, now what? We have this book. And then we invited a bunch of other people, uh, Colleen Morgan, a bunch of other people to contribute. Uh, And we had this manuscript, but like, I didn't know how to use InDesign. Like Andrew was really busy. Uh, Like the... We, we had to excavate the files off, not, not out of, out of kind of wanting to work on the book, but we had helped his widow, like get the, his professional yeah. files off his computer. And so we had found in that kind of excavation, the files for it. And it took us about a year or two after that. It took me a year after that to learn enough InDesign to just get back into producing it and also kind mm-hmm. of get over the kind of, you know, this guy was a close buddy of mine. He was down the street. Yeah, of course. Uh, and get over the kind of emotional impact of that. And so mm-hmm. finally we decided, okay, this book's going to come out. And uh, yeah, and that's, that's the kind of, the kind of story behind it. Uh, and then once you publish one book, it suddenly seems like a good idea to publish, to, to serve <laughs> as a publisher for more books, uh, which mm-hmm. I, the jury's still out on whether that is in fact a good idea, but that's, that's, <laughs> that's so amazing. I absolutely love it. And I think it exemplifies the, the attitude um, of punk archaeology although I, I think we haven't really been you haven't been too specific about what punk archaeology is um, I'm, I'm guessing that's for good reason is that punk archaeology is what you make of it I guess just like any archaeology yeah I think that's fair I think when I first started uh, talking about this with Costis there were two trajectories one is Costis was very interested in the archaeology of, of punk movement in, in general, right? So Philadelphia had a punk 
punk rock scene, right? Like Sonic Youth, some of these bands that came out of there. You know, Bowie was there in Philly recording things and stuff like that, right? So there was a there was a scene there that uh, required uh, documentation, excavation. That's kind of his interest. My interest was more of a kind of Michael Shanksian sort of performativity and DIY. Um, and I think both of us figured out um, pretty quickly that uh, other people who were, you know, Costis is pretty smart, so I won't throw him under the bus, but certainly smarter than me. Uh, had better ideas of what this was and what the limitations of my imagining of it. And so, you know, it's it's one of the interesting things is to hear the term uh, be used in a whole, whole, all sorts of different ways, most of which were are, are more um, interesting, more socially relevant, more pro- disciplinarily relevant, and, and more sophisticated than what I was imagining, I don't know, whatever, uh, 10 years ago when, when me and Costis were shooting emails back and forth uh, talking about like what would the archaeology of you know arcade fires suburbs look like or whatever we're we're trying mm-hmm. to write about. So, do you ever think there's? I mean, what was? Do you ever think there's scope for um, punk archaeology too, uh, electric bugaloo, or do you think that it's kind of reflective of a place and time in 2013, 2014, and just before then, um, for a certain kind of sense of feeling? Because it, it does, you know, it is a really good book, and it's actually available for free um, online. Um, I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Um, do you feel like? Do you feel like it is? I mean, have you read it recently? Have you ever looked back on it? And what have people's reactions to it been? Yeah, you know, actually, uh, I had a conversation with Lorna Richardson maybe two years ago um, where she published, uh, I think it was in that World Archaeology uh, um, volume issue, whatever it is, uh, that that looked at, uh, what, I can't remember what it, how it was phrased, but like... Uh, I can't remember how something something about alternative archaeologies or I don't know, musical mm-hmm. archaeologies. I can't remember what it was. And she and I like went back and forth a little bit on on you know would there be space because she she offered some some very um, incisive critiques of punk archaeology, a particular reading of it, which I thought were were I will take it over my my feelings being hurt because I'm kind of a snowflake. Uh, I thought <laughs> we're, we're really kind of spot on, and so mm-hmm. you know I, I, there has been this kind of conversation. Um, I don't know. The challenge of everything is there's a million interesting ideas to do. And without that kind of moment, uh, without, without something that's sort of a flash that, that, uh, gets a bunch of people to kind of coalesce, uh, around an idea. And, you you know, I think, I think some, some to do, to do the work, um, like I would love to explore the relationship between like growing interest in like various types of anarchaeology, right. And archeology. Uh, I think that would be, uh, that'd be interesting and useful. I think, uh, I think the, the intellectual side of punk has recently been um, kind of unpacked uh, in literature, in, in academic literature in ways that make it uh, a little more malleable to punk music. Right. And so how, how, how do those ideas that, that, you know, were, were the stuff that Iggy pop or, or, um, you know, whoever was reading or uh, in, in the UK, uh, how, how do we understand uh, the role of, of, you know, uh, crass and some of these like, or, or the Mekons or some of these bands that work as various kinds of collectives. And how do we understand the way in which, I mean, so there, there's stuff to do and stuff to say. Um, but I'm writing two books right now. I'm probably going to miss a lot of deadlines. So I don't know if it, I don't know if it's going to be me to say it. I think I take up a lot of space already and probably other people, uh, could be uh, meaningful leaders. But if they need a press, if they're listening to this podcast yeah. and say they want to do that, there's a press that's more than happy to take on the labor of publishing it. 
Mm-hmm. That's good. I will link to that as well uh, in the show notes. Um, I kind of want to draw upon something that I kind of find um, from yourself, some of your work that I thought was really intriguing because I feel like it's, I, I, I always have a big problem with um, archaeology and periods of history that are very much uh, cool, interesting. Like nobody cares about, you know, 13th century farmers in Bordeaux. Nobody cares about the archaeology of brushing teeth. Um, you know, there are weird kind of, there are things out there that people don't think about. However, I want to focus on the Bakken, if that rings a bell. Could you explain to someone like me who's never been to North Dakota, uh, or never ever been to that part of the world, you were doing archaeology in like in America, but of something quite contemporary, if I understood it correctly. Yeah. Um, uh, do you want to hear the origin story? I can tell you another yes. long rambling oh, go on, origin go on. story. Keep, keep, oh, this is what I this is why I have you here. Come on, <laughs> you might lay it down. Out. So, so <laughs> me, me, so I, uh, in in two thousand three, I start a project in Cyprus. Uh, without getting into boring detail, it's tricky for for new, new PhDs to get get fieldwork opportunities in Greece as as a project director. I had an old friend from grad school who's trying to get a project going in Cyprus. He graciously invited me and a colleague over, and uh, this becomes a project called the Pilakutsa Petri Archaeological Project. Uh, it's a survey, and uh, eventually there'll be an excavation volume that comes out of that when it's done at some point. Uh, so the one of our field seasons. Uh, we, we we were always like totally punk archaeology project on a shoestring budget. We we're kind of crammed in these like apartments in downtown Larnaca, Cyprus. Like we were cooking on electric grills out on this tiny balcony uh, where we had like twenty five people who'd be kind of shuffling through our bedroom to get fed. It was like not not it was suboptimal uh, in lots of ways. But one of the, the so so one of the things once we got a little grant money in our pocket, we wanted to hire a, a camp manager, someone who could be like a cook basically, but also who could help run errands, who could drive on the other side of the road, right? We're Americans. We get confused by this stuff. Um, And so uh, I had a buddy here who had finished his PhD in history, but was working on uh, a master's in social work um, because his wife had recently been hired by the social work program here in the U.S. It's often very hard to find social workers with PhDs. So someone like this guy was very appealing to get him trained up in social work, uh, to drop him into this department to teach social policy. All right. So Mm -hmm. weird background. I convinced him. He also happened to own, this guy is called Brett Weber. And he owned, he also owned a a, a chain of pizza restaurants in Utah in an earlier life. And so he knew how to cook at scale. So I'm like, hey man, do you want to just come to Cyprus and hang out with us on this archaeological project? You could do some archaeological work if you want, uh, but we really need a camp manager. Like we'll pay your way. It could be a good time. And he's like, yeah, sure. I have nothing to do this summer. So he came over and uh, did some marathon training, uh, uh, did, did kind of cooking and camp management for us. Uh, but also I was at the time producing a high resolution map um, of, of, of our site using a, a, a differential GPS, just taking you know, 10,000, 15,000 points. And I was using it as a chance to also do you know, a pretty fine, detailed, if unsystematic survey of some areas that were a little bit rugged and were hard for us to drop survey units on. Any of that. While we were doing this, uh, we started to have this conversation, and this must have been 2009, about what's going on in Western uh, North Dakota. We're both uh, Eastern North Dakota people at the time. They're both still are. 
and uh, the Bakken. I said, hey, would it be cool to do something like archaeology, but with your this guy's policy background, so we could bring together a kind of archaeology and policy convergence, right? Uh, and the site we've been working on in, in Cyprus had, among other things, uh, was it was clearly a short-term settlement. Uh, there's a kind of a big normal town uh, on the coastal plain, but up on these uh, uh, on this kind of coastal height, there was what we, we still think is probably a mercenary camp. So we'd been talking a lot about occasional settlement, short-term settlement. Cyprus is interesting because in the Bronze Age, we have evidence for uh, basically mining camps up in the Trodos Mountains where they're extracting copper and things like that. So there's uh, it's a place that where you think about not only extractive industries because the island is so closely associated uh, with, with, with extractive practices, uh, temporary settlements that come parallel to that. So we were like literally sitting in the Mediterranean, walking around with a GPS stick and you, I don't know, sure you've done some of this, how mind numbing this type of work is, uh, shooting the shit about what's going on in North Dakota. Uh, and we kind of concocted this project. At that same time, they were making tons of grant money available for these kinds of projects. And we got together with a bunch of people who are interested, humanities people who are interested, humanities and social science people in Western North Dakota. And uh, yeah, that's where this, this project that we, we called the North Dakota Man Camp Project uh, emerged from. And then we kind of put out the call. And so my old punk archaeology buddy, uh, Costis Corellis was like, he's an architectural historian. He's perfect, right? He hadn't been to North Dakota ever before, other than for the punk archaeology con uh, conference, but he was in. Uh, the other guy, Richard Rothus, who is a, um, who's now a dean at University of Central Michigan, uh, was in because he was a CRM guy who knew the area really well and is multi-skilled, right? So he could do everything from GIS and digital stuff to uh, uh, slightly before the era of, of, of cheap drones. So we're still using kites with cameras on gimbals to do aerial photos. He could do stuff like that. Plus he had a really cool big truck. And if you're rolling around the Bakken, uh, Western North Dakota in some sort of state-owned, you know, sedan, you are pretty much not going to get a lot of friendly conversations. But if you roll up in, you know, a half ton diesel pickup truck, you are, you're fine. You're in the club. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we just kind of got together. Um, we brought in artists, we brought in um, other people, uh, we did a bunch of interviews, we have hundreds of hours, over 100 hours of interviews, we have uh, over 10,000 photographs, we have hours and hours of video, um, and we have a lot of uh, paper documentation, just description, and our primary focus, this has a, it wasn't just me and a bunch of my buddies hanging out in Western North Dakota, our primary focus was on workforce housing. Um, because this was all of the stuff in the, in the in the U.S. media was about these things called man camps. And we were interested in what these temporary housing looked like in the context of the Bakken oil boom. Bakken oil boom begins around 2008 and 2009, where you have the introduction of fracking to a, a, an old oil field. Uh, uh, the Bakken formation is uh, not only rather deep, so uh, efficiencies in drilling uh, has had suddenly made it relevant again. Um, it's also a little bit tricky to get the oil out of because it's very sh it's it's very uh, the 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 oil um, is in very thin shale layers uh, that really have to be fracked. So it's not like in places like the Permian Basin where you have big reservoirs that you're kind of popping holes into like straws. Um, instead, this is often drilling ladder uh, horizontally um, fracking, which uses a kind of an explosive to. Uh, perforate a pipe and generate pressure and then negative pressure, which allows you to draw the oil out. Um, so there was this intersection of technology and, uh, um, you know, 2008, nine was also a period where you had uh, uh, 
labor available because you had the housing crash here, the economic global economic downturn, things like that. So uh, yeah, in 2010 and 11, we began documenting um, workforce housing out there uh, and using archaeological methods as well as uh, social scientific broadly methods. Uh, my, my buddy Brett is more of a studs turkle than a you know, a kind of conventional, uh, than a, a kind of conventional anthropologist. Uh, but he, he could get, he gets, he's six two, six three. he gets people to talk to him. He has this incredible ability to walk into a room full of like rough looking guys uh, and get them all to have a conversation with him about what it's like to work out there. So yeah, this was this project. And this project resulted in a number of publications, um, which, you know, I can tell you what they are. That seems boring. Uh, I can give them to you. No, it's good. Them in the yeah, show. yeah. So some of, my, some of which were published by my press, uh, uh, some of which were published uh, regionally. Like I wrote, we wrote a tourist guide to the Bakken um, as a kind of, I don't know, it's my little effort at a kind of anarchaeology. Um, yeah. And then a bunch of kind of conventional articles in places like historical archaeology and Journal of Contemporary Archaeology and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. These are really good examples of kind of like um, examples of archaeology that doesn't really normally get done. You know, like this is exciting and interesting because it's interesting how it contrasts with your work in like Cyprus, you know, with regards to like it's something very old contrast is something very new, but there's still this kind of connectivity of you can use the same kind of aspects and methods and applications on one as the other i think that's quite that's quite interesting to kind of be able to see the world um in these ways to unpick the layers and it is really it's really something special i think about archaeology in general um do you feel like I think this is my biggest question, really, you know, and why I called myself the anarchaeologist uh, when I first came on Twitter, when I was first making my brand back in 2014, actually. Um, I think it was because I wanted an archaeology that was different. Like I was looking, I was looking for the next paradigm shift and I'm still waiting on it. Um, like I religiously read the little blue book um social theory and archaeology by shanks and tilly like i read that religiously um i still pull it out as a kind of a thing like hey you know this exists guys please um but at the same time it's 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 old you know i could do archaeology about it i could do like a historical analysis on it because nowadays there are more things that we really need to think about and talk about because for all the all the advances in archaeology, um, I I'm sure I don't know exactly what it's like in America, but for example, in the UK, archaeology is very privileged. Um, there are not a lot of people from uh, less like economically developed backgrounds, or they're no, I want to use a different term like those with um, there's a lot of people from privileged backgrounds and those with money in archaeology. And archaeology seems like a luxury pastime. Uh, there are many reasons for that. And actually, it doesn't help uh, the way in which people have to get into archaeology, like through a degree and stuff. It, it doesn't really help archaeology. Uh, it'd be nice to kind of see an archaeology that doesn't require 
a degree and doesn't require all this like extra work that you have to pay for to do like you know field schools and stuff like that it'd be good if an archaeology a punk archaeology arose out of people wanting to collaborate freely with each other yeah you know look i i mean i i agree i think that that this is this is one of the reasons you know you know you're saying like looking for this paradigm shift well it's hard to kind of conceive of a paradigm shift where uh, it's the same people sort of doing it with the same sort of entrenched commitments with the same, you know, we, we, we may fashion ourselves like, I don't know, I've been in like kind of not, not COVID COVID stay at home mode. So I've let my beard grow really long, which is great. Like, this is not like good. You know, I can let my beard grow as long as I want. And it's still not going to make me a radical. Like I, it's not going to turn me into Karl Marx or something. Right. I come from an oh, affluent. Damn. Oh, damn. Yeah. Oh, shoot. <laughs> disappointing as that may be you know uh, i come from an affluent background like mm-hmm. i live as an upper middle class life i'm tenured i'm white i'm male like i have all these advantages uh, and, and it's and yeah i mean it's really hard for for someone like me to kind of think my way out of that identity um and you know if we've learned anything about you know from the events i mean if, if we've needed to be reminded uh from the events of the last you know two three weeks in the u.s that that deep structural racism, you know, isn't simply something that happens to the police department in Minneapolis, but it's something that we're all sort of, uh, that, that structure our existence, right? And that means things like archaeology. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so on the one hand, I would love, uh, you know, at its core, archaeology is not that complicated, right? I, I mean, I've never mm-hmm. had a class in it. How hard could it be? Uh, you know, it involves like careful description. It involves like your ability, ability, ability to adapt quickly to using tools, um, whether it's a trowel and, you know, my, my colleagues will yell at me about how I'm not troweling right. Or if you keep using a pick like that, you're going to destroy your shoulder. Okay, fine. This is true. Uh, but, but uh, you know, GIS has become easier. Databases have become easier. You know, all these kind of tools and management, you know, uh, that, that, that manage information have become easier. These, the, the barrier for entry into this stuff is no longer this, is, is not this kind of massive intellectual hurdle. But on the other hand, like archaeology is a profession um has uh, has come a long way too right so by requiring archaeologists to have these degrees it is on on the one hand a kind of restrictive uh uh right you know it 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 is a, a way that limits who gets access but on the other hand it was initially conceived of as as a democratizing way of a way of democratizing archaeology, right? That by creating a set of professional standards, it wasn't just the rich dude from, you know, wherever on his country estate who decides to dig up, you know, just dig up and see what's under that big hill that's conically shaped, right? That it, that it moved away from, from uh, you know, the first five, whatever, five generations of Mediterranean archaeologists who were people wealthy enough to be able to take a ship to Greece and like at best draw things, at worst take things home. Uh, by developing a professional archaeology that have these barriers to entry, we uh, ironically uh, were working to kind of open the practice up to people who had uh, what we saw as the professional and intellectual training uh, to be able to do it. That that would be a level that would be a leveling playing field. Of course, the irony is that it hasn't necessarily done that. That you know our field is still very much too male. Our field is still very mm-hmm. much too white. Our field is still very much too colonialist, too affluent, and. And yeah, I mean, and 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 maybe maybe the the call to blow everything up um, is a little more appealing now 
than in the 1950s where uh, in 1950s where all hyped up on our, our, our uh, you know, Binford or whatever we envisioned or even hyped up on our, our Shanks and Tilly in the 80s that we envisioned uh, the ability of kind of radically restructuring the discipline from within. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, there, there can be all the, you know, like archaeology can do as much as it wants um, in terms of how it improves itself. But fundamentally, I, I think it's, it's important that we don't set too much of a separation between archaeologists and the public, because the archaeologists are also part of that public as well. I think that's a point that Lorna Richardson has mentioned several times, and it's one that sticks with me very, very pertinently, is that, you know, um, archaeology is not wholly separated from the public, and uh, the public's view of the past is tied to the ability of um, the archaeology to kind of translate you know, the, the archaeology that the public does in the way it absorbs information and processes it, uh, that archaeology is not so separate to what is done by archaeologists themselves. And I think my concern is that, like, I think history to society is often um, this weirdly self-fulfilling prop- prophecy. And I, I'll put it like this, like, there's almost like this, well, look, if we study the great things that people did before, when we get studied in the future, people will only focus on the great things that we did. And it's this kind of like almost implicit kind of like filtering out of these certain things over others that are more interesting. It almost, it looks as if like, it feels to me as that there's this future kind of thing. Well, if we get dug up and people look back on us, um, we would hope that they look fondly on us and they take the time to look after our remains and, you know, present us in a good light. But it doesn't really convey, I think there's what's missing is that there's, there's not this sense of like violence of archeology, span you know, of this tearing things out of the ground of disturb, disturbing somebody's grave. And I don't know how, how do we how do we connect these two things together? How do we make society kind of think? Actually, you no, know, archaeology is this um, this really kind of weird perspective thing on death. You know, like wh- where is this coming from? You know, like how do we connect people with archaeology? You know. Yeah, I mean, this is the you know, there's much smarter people than me have kind of thought and wrote about this, and you know, I think I think you're right in in the sense that archaeology has always had this kind of utopian, you know, this kind of utopian element, which is you know, looking at the past to understand uh, uh, the good, the best, the, you know, the the things in the present, and in many cases, the best things in the present, right? Not always, right? We we can look in the past to understand the roots of injustice and things like that, but even then, the hope is that the trajectory that that we're on by understanding this, we will understand the trajectory as it as it. You know, whatever, where, where it goes, it, it bends toward justice or however you want to um, articulate it. So, yeah, I think there's always been this kind of hope, right? That, that if we look at the past with charitable eyes, that people will look at us with charitable eyes as well, that they will see the good at what we, and I think that, that, you know, ha, ha, has a, a, an, an, an appeal to people, but I think more than that, right? Like a lot of the old chestnuts that, you know, we, we can, 
you know, roll our eyes at or whatever, still retain, you know, the, the idea of the Indiana Jones, the idea of, you know, uh, of, of, you know, what, what the first question, I mean, almost every archaeologist I know gets asked is, what's the coolest thing you've ever found, right? And so you're like, oh, man, like, I don't have to, like, try to remember something I found. Like, I'm a survey guy. Like, mostly what I found is, like, broken pottery, really. I mean, mm-hmm. like, is any of that broken pottery really cool? I don't know. I found this one. It's kind of green. I'm not sure. I found a bowl once. I think it was made of stone. I don't know. Like, but but the, the public, but I, I've had to kind of like reform what I say, right? Because if I respond like that, the public's like, oh my God, you're the worst kind of archaeologist. Whereas in fact, they want to know that exciting thing. They want to they want to hear a story, right? They want to understand something like that. So much of our engagement is in that kind of sense of, that, that sense of narrative. Um, I think people are, are fascinated and go back to, to Michael Shanks by the performative elements of archaeology. They like the idea that, that an archaeologist is meticulous, right? They like the idea that you're cleaning off stuff with a toothbrush or whatever, which I've frankly never done, but I, I imagine has been done by people, probably people on my project who were smart enough to not let me in the trench at that very moment. Um, <laughs> or, you know, thing, things like that, or even the um, romance of, of, of uh, one of the first things I published was a, um, was a fort. And it was on top of this mountain in the Corinthia. And it's unbelievably cool views. And, you know, no one cares about the fort at all. But I occasionally will get emails about like, oh, I want to go up to the top of this mountain and see the views from up there because it looks awesome, right? It's a very prominent height. And so, you know, just just the ability to be out in the field and to see the world, you know, from different pers- vantage points and different perspectives, like that's the stuff that gets the public kind of, kind of interested, um, at least in, in, in the kind of archaeology I do. And I think when we were working out in the Bakken, um, one of the things that, that became uh, pretty apparent is when we explained to people that we were archaeologists and scholars, uh, historians studying uh, what they were, um, how they were living right now, there was this kind of reciprocal interest in their part in what we were doing. Um, they, they, they saw that by us calling what they were their life situation as archaeological and historical, we were like validating their impression, which was this is a kind of singular, interesting moment, right? That the Bakken boom, you know, this kind of influx of people into this very rural area of Western North Dakota, this kind of um, strangely uh, uh, austere uh, kind of, uh, yeah, this this kind of austere and unforgiving landscape that suddenly saw, you know, whatever, 10, 20,000 people show up to, to, to work in the oil, that when we said, hey, we're studying what you're doing, um, they were a little less interested in our methods. They weren't even really tremendously interested in our conclusions, but there was a sense that by studying it, we were validating their own, um, their own uh, experience that this was something unique. So I think there's, there's an element to that also within, within archeology span to give you a very long rambling response. Mm -hmm. No, but I think, um, actually it completely highlights the, you know, the need for, I, I mean, like they wouldn't, I don't know if they would have been as intrigued that their history was being treated like history and archeology span for study if there wasn't this sense of there are only certain things that are interesting enough to study. And for me, I I don't know, how do we get, how do we, how do we destroy this hierarchy, this hierarchy of like, uh, and this, this, this permeates all the way up. This is why museums currently exist as they currently do. You know, for, for me, I'm getting more and more on the side of look, museums need to go, you know, um metaphorically burn them all down 
uh, because they're not providing uh, the value that they say they do. They, they're what they're doing is providing a structure of hierarchy in terms of like this is important history and this is not important history and it really shapes how people see the world um i I, i'm like i'm trying not to make this too topical but like i'm sure you've seen a few statues be taken down recently sure Yeah, yeah absolutely isn't it funny how people's reactions to that is different than when for example at the fall of the soviet union um statues of stalin and lenin were ceremoniously taken down or um when the there was the iraq invasion and saddam hussein was um displaced that his statue was all being torn down was all over the news and it was being celebrated but as soon as that same behavior was targeted at some people with awful history suddenly it was a big problem and I think that that's the perspective that we need to change, but it's a very difficult thing to do. How do we get people interested in boring history? You know, how do we, how do we, how do we communicate that? Yeah. I mean, this is, this is the, the question that is confronting, uh, you know, I think in some ways confronting the humanities and social sciences, and it's not, not just that it's boring, but it's boring in part because uh, people, people don't think it matters. Right. Even though they they you know variously celebrate or mourn uh, the loss of of some statue of Robert E. Lee right in Richmond, Virginia, or whatever, right? So out of one side of the mouth, this stuff isn't relevant. Um, we need to invest in in the study. We we need to invest in things like culture is a luxury. Right. We need to invest in things that are economic, that, that, that will uh, allow the economy to rebound or whatever. We don't want to uh, invest in art. We don't want to invest in history. We don't want to invest in um, uh, or or if we do, it's because these things somehow survive on the on, on the market. Right. Like uh, the marketplace of ideas. If, if history is really important and people care, then money will go to history because we know uh, people care about iPhones and money goes to iPhones. And so. It's just uh, like a hyper-capitalist archaeology. It's like yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And so the, the, the question is, do we either concede to that and say we have to get people interested in, um, you know, the, the archaeology of tooth, tooth, toothbrushes or, uh, or, or things like that? Or, or do we uh, – and, and, and I think to some extent that has uh, not only the, the positive side of things, which is, okay, we're going to get people interested in these – uh, in these things that talk about everyday life, that that show the kind of consistencies of everyday life, that allows us to uh, find ways in which communities have shared values and shared, you know, maybe even talk you know, wistfully about shared humanity. I'm not really sure, um, or shared identity forming moments. Or do we go the other direction, which is, yeah, we also need to sell, you know, sell tickets. Um, and, 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 and that means we need to ensure that our universities remain funded. That means, you know, uh, we, we want to ensure that, uh, that there's grant money to, to fund the next excavation, uh, that it's not entirely driven uh, by salvage. Uh, not, not, that, not that my colleagues who do salvage archaeology don't do really fine jobs, but I think there has to be a balance between kind of research-based research based archaeology and CRM uh, or, or heritage, ba- you know, uh, uh, salvage practice, salvage archaeology. Like how do we, and, and, and if we're going down the, how do we sell tickets road, then we are like, un, you know, unwittingly conforming to these ideas of, uh, of, of the marketplace of ideas, this kind of capitalist or, or you know, as, as my friends in English departments will call it like this neoliberal view 
of, of culture, which means you have to convince people that we should care about Shakespeare. And if enough people care about Shakespeare, then the Globe Theater will continue to stay in business or the Royal Shakespeare Company, whatever, whatever, will continue to function. And if you let them down and not enough people care about Shakespeare, then these things will fold and uh, all we'll have is, I don't know, whatever, what, whatever other playwright there is. Um, or whatever other form of entertainment, George Lucas or Ewoks or whatever the hell people watch. And it's precisely this uh, this kind of responsibility on the individual. If enough individual uh, actors within the system individually choose to individually change something, some behavior, that's how this can change. And it, it's, it's ridiculous. This is why I say, this is why I had an episode... Um, ages ago called we are the decay because i would i would argue if you look at the you know history through the this kind of neoliberal sense you're actually you, you assign more resources to certain bits of history which are then better preserved and others are less better preserved and something's less better preserved it then decays more and therefore what we are, have to understand is that this action that we're doing is not neutral. This is the biggest problem is that people think the free market, the marketplace of ideas is this neutral entity from which no kind of like, no justified wrong can come from. Uh, that, you know, we have to realize we are the decay. We are causing the decay of certain histories by not allocating them resources. Like that's an active choice. But by molding it into the marketplace, we create it as a passive choice, as a, well, that's just how it is. That's just people aren't interested. They don't want to know. Right, but they right. people do want to know. And this is, this, is the, this is the big thing. I mean, I, I, are you familiar with Derrida's hauntology? Yeah, sure. This is, this is, this is what I would say is uh, an aspect of hauntology in which the, the, the future haunts the present but it's also a, it's a reflective echo of the past in the terms that like I feel like this form of creating history through neoliberal identification is, is causing harm and it's damaging the history that we currently have. It's, it's almost like, you know, we're trying to, we're trying to yearn for a history that actually never happened because the way in which it's presented is always skewed in certain ways, um, which I think is just, it's, 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 it's something that we need to be able to overcome. But I think as you identified earlier, it's, you know, it cannot be the same people who were moving the needle before, because you can only push things in a certain way to a certain point. You know, there needs to be almost like fresh ideas out there uh, in order to fundamentally change uh, a system. Yeah. And I mean, this is an assumption that, that the system, however, you know, that, that, that to, to go back to your me metaphor, right. That, that some of these things, the things, the things are, that are decaying, it could be, are, it could be seen as simply the, the, uh, the, the, the final, uh, um, the final consumption of the last uh, intergenerational wealth, right? <laughs> that that the the things that that die are the things that run out of run out of resources or never had resources behind it, right? And the things that persist tend to get stronger, right? And they they tend to have this kind of uh, momentum on its momentum on its own. And the talk, you know, particularly in you, you know. Uh, 
considering the moments, the, the moment that we live in right now is the way in which these structures, these systems in which um, all of this discourse is being produced. It's, it's how, how broken is that? Is there, you know, is, is the idea of the, the meritocracy, and in that sense, I mean it in the non-ironic way, you know, is there, is there a possibility for a system which evaluates people on the basis of, uh, you know, of their intellectual ability, their preparation, their professionalism? I mean, we've all know that there's a difference between, um, and in the field, it's very obvious, the difference between a good archaeologist and a not good archaeologist, right? This is not something that's like really hard to discern. Uh, you know, does that have merit within a kind of a professional system? Or is the system itself so fundamentally broken in the sense that the good archaeologist is always going to be not the product of of, of individual agency and their care uh, that they take in, in, in doing their job, but much more likely to be uh, a product of their professional uh, pedigree or their, uh, which is often a reflection on their like socioeconomic status, which is also often a reflection of, you know, is this one of these kids who's been in the field since age 18? Because after their freshman year at some uh, uh, fancy uh, private university, they went off to the Mediterranean because their parents are very wealthy and they've been doing field work. For, you know, they have a, a in some cases, a 20 year head start over someone who goes into the field in their 20s, right? Like beginning to dig mm -hmm. uh, down the street at a community excavation. And so that that person is always going to. So anyway, you know, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. I, I know I'm telling you stuff, you know, but it's how much then then do these kind of intergenerational um, opportunities create this kind of momentum within a system that is all that is fundamentally inescapable that that mm. you know do we you know as you say burn them all down do we burn all the museums down not not literally um but, but you know well uh, <laughs> gotta make some change happen right right like how, you know how do we deal with this um uh-huh i think i think it, i think it's a very hard thing especially since so many of us who probably mm. have the ability to make these kinds of changes are also the people who right now benefit the most from a structure that put them, you know, these, these it's structures that put them in place. Like I would love mm -hmm. to pretend uh, that, that if I grew my beard long enough, that somehow like my family's affluence didn't give me the opportunity to do what I do, but uh, that's just not the case, right? Like e any change that I promote, um, even if I can articulate it in the most sort of, uh, culturally, politically, socially woke way possible is going to be a reflection of the kind of my own situatedness within culture, within economic networks and, and the like. Mm -hmm. No, no, definitely, definitely. You mentioned um, you're currently working on some books um, at the moment. Uh, do you have titles for those? Uh, are they signs of future work that you're currently, what are they on? I have a couple things that are that are, that are kind of happening. One, I, I don't have a title for it, but it's the so our, our work in Cyprus. We produced a survey volume uh, that you can download for, for free someplace. I can't remember where, but I'll give you the link to it just in case someone wants to download it for free. Um, and we have a we did three seasons of excavation, and that has to come out. The book is like eighty five percent done. It just has to be finished. Uh, I'm also writing a uh, my, my new, newer project is. Uh, a book on the archaeology of the contemporary American, the archaeology of the contemporary American experience, and it's really the first um, sort of survey slash synthetic work on archaeology of the contemporary world in a North American 
mostly United States perspective. Uh, it's it's for a book series published by University of Presses of Florida. Uh, and it's 70%, I don't know, like on good days, it's 60% done. On bad days, it's 40% done. Sometimes it's 70% done when I really need to justify having a third beer on a Friday night or something. Um, so yeah, those are the things I'm, I'm kind of working on. And I have like a lot of little you know, as everyone does, I have like a lot of little stuff that floats around. Like I did a, a I put together a, a, a manuscripts under review. That's a bunch of photographs from our workout in the Bakken. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that'll appear if it's accepted at the press where it's submitted. I don't know. Maybe not. Um, yeah. So I have lots of things like that are sort of swirling around. If people want to find out some of your work online, I know you run a blog. What's it called? Uh, the Archaeology of the Mediterranean World. And I think it's mediterraneanworld.wordpress.com still, because I've never bothered to buy my own domain. <laughs> keeping it real. Keeping it real. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, Perfect. And uh, on Twitter, do you spend a lot of time on Twitter? Uh, occasionally, you know, it depends on how wrong people are in the world. If there's a lot of people wrong in the world, I'm on Twitter a lot. Uh, but if everyone seems to be behaving, uh, then I, I have a little sheepdog uh, here that I rescued from Greece uh, a few years back, and he yeah, I have the same opinion. If everyone in the world behaves, there's no need to bark at them. But, mm. you know, this neighborhood, you know, it's a lot of middle-class people doing questionable <laughs> things, so a lot of times I'm barking. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, thank you again for coming to have a nice chat. Like, uh, I feel like pretty, pretty deep chat. This was, this was good. I enjoyed it. So, thank yeah, you again. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.